we've got a great conversation. We're extremely lucky to have Michael Morrill with us today. He was acting and deputy director of the CIA, so certainly be able to quiz him really about the theme that we followed through many of these annual meetings that we've had. How on earth do you make decisions with, in, an envi- in a high-consequence environment when the data around you is actually pretty limited? You do it as CEOs, as an investor, we do it. It's, it's pretty relevant for, for what we all have to deal with on a daily basis. So we're excited to, to dig into that some more with Michael. Maybe I could just start with a super, super quick story. Go for it. Um, you're good, to, at, you're good to, at those. Just to give you a sense of who I am. Yes. Um, so, you, so, so, so Gareth mentioned that I was acting director of the CIA. Um, I was actually acting director twice. And um, once during the second time that I was acting director between Dave Petraeus leaving and John Brennan coming, my wife and I went out to dinner in Washington, D.C. Um, and so we're driving around in these big armored SUVs, right, with these security guys with, with weapons. And we pull into this, this um, parking lot of this restaurant, and there's a guy standing against the wall. And he's looking at us. And he's got the look on his face like, who is this? Right? Is this Michelle Obama? Is this the <laughs> Secretary of State? Right? Who is this? And he's on my wife's side of the car. So when she gets out, he says to her, is that somebody important? And without missing a beat, my lovely wife said, no, he's just acting important. <laughs> uh. Brilliant. So, um, who's in charge in my house? Well, actually, let's 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 start there. I think it's, you know, it's always fascinating to get. Well, we love it as investors and early stage investors. We love the origin story. Um, where do you even? Where does someone like you even come from? <laughs> so, I grew up in Northeast Ohio. Okay. Um, you know, at that point, um, heavy industry. Um, you know, all of it feeding into the auto industry. My dad was a blue-collar worker. Uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um, I grew up in the middle class. Um, I went to college right down the street at the University of Akron. Um, couldn't afford to go anywhere else. Um, and uh, that's, that's kind of growing and what, up. And what did you, what did you study? At, at- so um, I started out in political science, but I very quickly, I very quickly shifted to economics because um, I took an economics course and I fell in love with it. Um, it seemed not only to explain the economy, but it seemed to explain human behavior, which I think it still does. Um, I'm very much of a Chicago kind of a communist. Um, and, and, and I loved it. And, and I wanted to go to grad school and get a PhD and, and teach. Um, but I had a professor um, who was working for the CIA. And um, he kind of tapped me on the shoulder. But you didn't know he was. I, I, I didn't know. I had no idea at the time. Yeah. Um, he tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, you know, I think you should apply to the CIA. They, they, they want people like you. Um, and I think he was focused on sort of critical thinking skills. Right. Um, which is one of the things an analyst needs at CIA. Uh, probably the most important thing. Um, so I did. So I sent an, an application. Um, and. CIA reached out and said, we'd like to bring you to Washington. And you know, I had never been to Washington, DC, never. Um, and I thought, heck, you know, I'll go see the nation's capital on the taxpayer's dime um, and you know, go off to grad school and get that PhD. So I had no interest in the job. So totally relaxed. Just boondoggle to DC. Boondoggle to DC and totally relaxed in the, in the interviews. Um, you know, I, I was, um, I, I was, 
blown away in the interviews by, by three things. One was the, the, the mission of the place, you know, which is not only to keep the country safe, but, but in the way that CIA does it is, is to tell the truth, what, what you believe to be the truth about the world, right? Um, unrelated to politics, unrelated to policy, just you know, kind of a referee or an umpire you know, calling balls and strikes, here's what we see. And the, over to you, Mr. President, to make the right decisions to keep the country safe. I, that, that really resonated with me, right? Um, rather than you know, going to law school and having to choose a side and argue that side's position, even if, even if you didn't believe it, right? Yeah. Um, so that was appealing. The second thing that was appealing was, were the, the, the capabilities of the organization that they could tell me about during those interviews, which weren't very many. But the ones they were able to tell me about were, you know, kind of blow your minds kind of stuff. Um, and then third and most important, I was, I was blown away by the people I met. You know, how smart they were, um, how, how open they were, how creative they were. Um, but most importantly, the, 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 there was a super strong sense of family. And, that, and, and that's an interesting point because you've shared in the ride over there to, to our dinner last night that your kids are... Yeah, all three of my kids uh, work there. And I think that's the thing they were attracted to because they saw, they, they saw me being attracted to that. And, and they were part of it, right? When I was deputy director, they were there all the time. They would yeah. come with me to work, um, for, you know, particularly on the weekends. Um, so they saw People all of coming that. Coming through the house. Coming through the house, security guys. Um, so, um, so that, and on the second day, all of the interviewers said, you know this grad school thing you keep on talking about that you talked about with everybody yesterday, how important that was to you? If you come work here, We'll take care of that. We'll send you back to school immediately um, at night. We'll pay for that. And if things go well for you career-wise, um, down the road, we'll send you back to work on your PhD. And we'll, we'll pay your salary and pay your tuition, and, and we'll take care of all that, which they ultimately did. Um, so I said yes, and I never looked back. And it's a good thing I didn't. No, it's amazing. And, and actually, you know, so many, I certainly didn't really appreciate the sort of the construct of the CIA until you know, I read a little bit of, of, of your book, or I read your book, uh, listened to your book, um, listened to some of your podcasts. Perhaps explain what it's like as an organization, because it's, it's a Fortune 200 yeah, company. Yeah. I mean, so I the, know you can't go into too much detail, but, but just sort of organize it for yeah, us. Yeah, so, so number of people and the budget is classified, but, it, it, but it's basically roughly the size of a Fortune 200 company with a worldwide presence. Yeah. Right, so um, large number of employees. Yeah. Employees of, of, of all different kinds. Um, you know, two fundamental groups of people who do the mission, mm -hmm. right? One are what we call operations officers um, who largely work overseas, who are all undercover, right? They can't say they work for the CIA. They say they work someplace else. Um, and their job is to recruit other human beings to commit espionage against their own country or their own group or what have you and give information to the United States. That's their job, and um, it's a really hard job, yep. right? Sitting across the table from another human being and having a conversation about that person committing espionage is the hardest, you know, one of the hardest conversations that you'll ever have. I could not do that job. You know, I, I couldn't ask girls out, you know, <laughs> when I was in my early 20s, right? Um, let alone ask somebody to spy, right? Um, so that's, that's, that's one half the agency, right? The other half the agency, um, is what I did, which is what we call all source analysis, which is taking all the information that's available to the US government and you know, putting it together and trying to make sense of it um, so that you can 
tell the president, you know, here's where we are, here's why we're here, here's where we're going, here are the key factors that will determine where we end up. Um, it's why the CIA was created, not to spy, yep. but to do this all source analysis thing because it turns out that prior to Pearl Harbor, all the information that you would have needed to figure out that the Japanese were gonna attack Pearl Harbor, the US government had, there just wasn't somebody who put it together. And so President Truman didn't want it, that mistake to happen again, so he created the CIA. Yeah, incredible. Um, in, in, in addition to the countless awards that you've, you've won for service to, to the US, you spent a large portion of your career glued to the sides of two presidents of, of the US. Uh, you were with Bush on 9-11 on uh, in Florida. And, uh, and you were with President Obama, um, and we laughed about this last night, not the, not the moment, but the Situation Room, which is the sort of slightly underwhelming room <laughs> in the basement of the White House that Brooks and I were lucky enough to see. But you were, you were with um, President Obama when, when Osama bin Laden was, was brought to justice. And I, I, think these, I think the audience, I certainly enjoyed it last night, would just love a flavor of, well, what on earth is that? like, especially as a young man who said, you know, who's delivering the daily message that's informing decisions that really impact the world, not just the US. You know, try and give us a sense of what that felt like, you know, and what it actually entailed. So, so being a briefer. Yeah. Or, or, and or and I think being a briefer, being glued to the, literally to two presidents who yeah. arguably are, you know, even today still the most powerful people on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to be careful what you say. Um, that's for sure. Um, you know, uh, I, I briefed President Bush from January 4th, uh, 2001 to January 4th, 2002. Um, so I was with him six days a week, no matter where he was in the world. Um, and, you know, when he was in the Oval Office, um, it was supposed to be a half hour briefing and it would almost usually go 45 minutes or an hour. Um, on the weekends at Camp David, it would go two and a half hours just because he wanted to talk. He wanted to ask so many questions. Um, I went to the ranch with him. I went over with him, which is why I was with him on September 11th. Um, but, but, but you know, you're, you're informing the most powerful person in the world, right? Um, and I remember one day telling him, telling him something, actually showing him a piece of intelligence about how another country was thinking about um, whether we had the guts to fight or not as a nation. And um, a couple days later, um, in, a, in, a, in a TV interview, he made a fundamental change in policy. And the next morning, Condoleezza Rice, his national security advisor, was, was you know, basically telling him he made a mistake the night before when he gave this interview. And he, he said to her, well, Michael told me, right? <laughs> Uh, X, right? Michael told me X, which is why I said what I said. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God. <laughs> um, so yeah, you have impact, right? You really frame, help frame their view. Not just you, right? The whole, the whole agency, but you're the presenter. Um, you got to figure out how to present it to make it sticky, right? So both so they understand it and they, they, they maintain it. But also it. as a young, you know, I mean, you get responsibility at an incredibly young age. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things, that's, that's one of the things about CIA is, is there's not really a, um, a time when you're not doing something important, right? When you start there and you're given an assignment, you are, you are the analyst for that thing or you are the operations officer for that, that, that asset. 
and you are, you know, you're thrown into the deep end of the pool um, from day one, which is, you know, kind of nice. No, it's incredible. Well, it's a lot of what. Yeah, these guys do, right? These, these, yeah, these yeah. guys do. It's yeah. like big, big bets early yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, with high consequence yeah. and with limited information. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about just, you know, I, I want to get into, um, if we can, I'd love to touch on fintech as a pillar of national security. I'd love to talk about some predictions that you might have for the year ahead. I think we're all very curious on what your perspectives are with, with what's going on in the world generally. But before we go there, I think you know, the two biggest events that, you know, that certainly me reading your book would sort of pick out would be obviously 9-11 and, and obviously Osama bin Laden. Can you, can you just walk us through you know, almost what happened on the day of both? And then I think when we talk about Osama bin Laden being brought to justice, how you, how you and your organization stitched together the information that led to him being brought, brought to justice? Yeah, um, so 9-11, so um, you know, we're sitting here in New York, um, it's obviously a huge deal here, as it should be. Um, it's as if it happened yesterday in my mind. Um, so let me kind of, you know, quickly summarize, and I think it's a mixture of two things. It's a mixture of the intensity of doing my job um, and the surreal. So an example of, of the intensity of doing my job is after we left Florida, um, the president asked to see me um, in his office um, on Air Force One, which is actually smaller than this stage, <laughs> also underwhelming. Um, it was, it was the president, it was me, and it was his chief of staff at that time, Andy Card. And the president looked at me and said, Michael, who did this? Um, and I hadn't seen any, any information at all to, to take you to an answer to that question. So I told him that, and I told him he was gonna get my best guess, and he said, he said I got the caveat, now move on. You know, tell, me, tell me what you think, right? Not what you know, tell me what you think. Um, and I said, Mr. President, there's two countries in the world that have the capability to do this, Iran and Iraq, but neither one of them have anything to gain and both of them have everything to lose. I told him, um, you know, rather than one of those, I was, I was you know, highly confident that when we got to the end of the road, we would find bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, which we had talked to him about you know, for months um, in great detail. Yep. Um, and a lot of threat reporting um, that spring and summer that didn't take you to what happened on 9-11, but you know, was, was, was clearly an indicator, a flag, that something was coming. Um, so it wasn't a surprise to him. You know, he heard that and he said to me, you know, when will we know? Which is the kind of question you get from a president, um, to which there's no specific answer. So you fall back on something that analysts do, which is called provide context. So I reached back into my memory and, and told him, of previous attacks on America and how long did it take us to figure them out. So East Africa bombings, three days to figure out it was bin Laden. Um, the bombing of the USS Cole off the coast of Yemen, uh, three months to figure out that it was bin Laden. Um, the bombing of Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia that killed, um, that killed a number of US Marines, a whole year to figure out that the Iranians had done that. Um, so I said, Mr. President, we may know soon as in the East Africa case, and then again, we may, it may take us quite a while, as in the Iran case. Um, 
So that's kind of the example of the intensity of doing my job. There were, there were several of those during the day. You know, an example of the surreal um, that I shared last night, which is kind of, um, you know, kind of amazing, is, is, is as, we were, as we were landing back at, at Andrews Air Force Base that night, the president's military aide, the guy who carries the nuclear football, he and I had become friends during the previous nine months. And he was looking out the windows of the left side of the aircraft. And he saw me looking at him, and he waved me over. So I got up out of my seat, you know, unbu unbuckled my seatbelt, got out of my seat, went over, and he said, look out. And I looked out, and there was an F-16 right there, right on the wingtip. And he said, they're from the DC Air National Guard. There's another one on the other wingtip. Um, it was so close, you could see the pilot. You could see the pilot kind of looking at us. And in the distance, you could see the still smoldering Pentagon. Wow. the way we were, we were arriving back at Andrews. And then he said something to me, um, which still sends shivers up my back, and it literally just happened, which is he said, do you know why they're there? I had no idea, not a military guy. And he said, they're there in case someone fires a surface-to-air missile at us on final approach. Their job would be to put themselves between that missile and the President of the United States. So, surreal. Yeah. Um, you know, um, the bin Laden thing, um, you know, there's a, there's a myth that we stopped looking for him. Um, it's not true. We followed every lead that we ever got um, as, as far as we could go until there was nothing left. There were hundreds of leads. Yeah. Um, we followed them all. There was one lead that began in 2002 in a prison in North Africa where an Al-Qaeda operative in detention told us about a particular individual who had been close to bin Laden prior to 9-11 and might be a courier for bin Laden. That was the beginning of a thread that went another nine years wow. and took us to Abbottabad, Pakistan. Um, you know, the day, is, the day itself was kind of anticlimactic. Right. Um, it was really the build-up um, to the day. Um, and also piecing together this, I mean, nine yeah. years of like, it goes hot, it's warm, it goes cold, it you know, gets warm again. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, we were asked all the time, um, you know, um, where's Bin Laden? Right. Uh, and we got, we got so frustrated, you know, answering that question that, you know, we said, we don't know. We don't know where he is. If we knew where he There's is, There's plenty of people on the run here in the U.S. that you can't find. Absolutely. In the, 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 the Unabomber um, was at large for 11 years. The Atlanta Olympic bomber was at large for six years. And the FBI owns this turf, right? <laughs> um, and they couldn't find him. So it, it, it's not easy to find somebody who's, who wants to hide. Um, and who's willing to go completely under the radar, right? Which Bin Laden was. Um, you know, basically, here's the information we had. There was no direct evidence. No direct evidence at all. Circumstantial case. Um, there was this, you know, extraordinarily weird compound in an upscale neighborhood in Pakistan that had 12 to 18 foot walls topped with barbed wire um, that did not you know, that the main house didn't have many windows, 
there was a balcony on the third floor, but it had a privacy wall, so you couldn't see in. Um, no, no, no telephone service, no internet service. They burned their trash. The kids didn't go to school. Um, we knew that, there, that, that this courier lived there with his brother. We found out that a third family lived there. Um, the kids of the third family kind of matched up with what we thought bin Laden's kids would be at that particular time in terms of age and number. Um, we figured out that, that, that the courier was still working for Al-Qaeda. Um, and that, and was a, that was an extraordinary piece of That was an extraordinary piece because one of the things we were worried about was whether he had left Al-Qaeda and he was working for an organized crime boss, right? And it was an organized crime boss who was living in that compound. Um, but we actually intercepted a telephone call, um, and you know it was an old friend of his from Kuwait who was bugging him about, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life? You know, what are you doing to work? You know, what, what's going on? And he and and the courier got super frustrated and said, I'm 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 with the same ones I was with before. Boom. Um, took care of that problem. But that's really all we knew, right there. So you're the president of the United States. Is that enough to go take a look? Right? Um, we had big debates about the probability of him being there. But if the president were here, he would tell you it was, it, in his mind, it was 50-50. Yep. In my mind, it was 60-40. Um, you know, probably um, a couple of moments we didn't talk about last night, but I think are pretty instructive. Um, for you all, and that's like that's speaking truth to power. Right. We all like to spin, you know, we all like to, you know, make a sale, right? And um, sometimes that's appropriate and sometimes it's not. And there was a moment, there's, there, there's two moments that stand out. One is, one is that the president wanted to understand why people who were looking at the same data were coming up with different probabilities. Like the main analyst, right, the Maya, the Maya from Zero Dark Thirty. Right. In the movie, she said she was 100% certain. In real life, she said she was 95% certain. The senior analyst in the counterterrorism center, so her boss's 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 boss, right, said he was 80%. I said I was 60. So the president's trying to figure out, why is everybody all over the map? Yeah. I don't understand this. And said to my boss, Leon Panetta, um, in the Situation Room, you know, why is everybody all over the map here? I don't understand. And Leon turns to me. I'm sitting behind him and said, Michael? <laughs> explain this to the president. And I said, Mr. President, you know, I, I, I think what's going on here is that people are washing this data, this rather limited data, right, through their own experience. Mm. The, the analysts who came to work on Al-Qaeda after 9-11 and who have known nothing but success after success after success in stopping attacks and in taking Al-Qaeda operators off the battlefield Right, they're washing it through that experience of success. I'm washing it through my experience of Iraq weapons of mass destruction when we got that wrong. Then I said to him, Mr. President, one of the things you need to know here is that the case that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction is stronger than the case that bin Laden is in that house. Yes. And you could hear you could almost hear a pin drop in the room. So that was speaking truth to power. My boss was not happy with me. Yeah. Right, my boss wanted to, the president to go, um, but I told the president what I thought, right? There was another moment like that when, when the president had made a decision about how he wanted to do this, you know, a ground operation where the, where the SEALs went in 
on helicopters. He made that decision, and he looked at Bill McRaven, who was then the commander of JSOC, who was going to command this operation, and he said, Bill, can you do this? And every military guy I've ever met would say, absolutely, Mr. President, we can get this done. Bill said, Mr. President, I don't know. I won't know until I exercise it. Right. So give me two weeks, and I'll come back, and I'll tell you the answer to your question. That's remarkable honesty. Um, and boy, when you do that, that builds a tremendous amount of credibility mm. with the person you're, you know, you're working for or trying to commit to something. Amazing. Um, we did touch on an interesting point last night, which again, I think is relevant to, to, to everyone, whether it's CEOs or, or investors like us, which is confirmation bias with, with data. Um, you were talking about it very specifically last night um, in regards to Israel and how they didn't really see, or perhaps they did, but they, they didn't see what was coming on, on October 7th. Can you, can you share a little bit of, of, of your thinking around that? And then if there are any tips or tricks or things that we should do to avoid falling into those pitfalls, that would be amazing to learn as well. Yeah, you know, so, so there's, a, there's a whole bunch of, of pitfalls that you can fall into when you are making judgments. And, you know, it's not only the CIA analysts who make judgments, we all make judgments every day about all sorts of things. Yep. And there's a ton of pitfalls. Um, one of the most, one of the most dangerous and one of the mistakes most often made is confirmation bias. What is that? You have a view about something, right? You've already made a judgment about something. And, and new data, right, keeps on coming in. Um, and some of that data is inconsistent with your judgment. And confirmation bias is when you don't look at that new data and say, huh, that's inconsistent with my judgment. Do I need to adjust my judgment? Do I need to change my judgment? Rather, you explain away the new data. Oh, the source is no good. Uh, here's what the source really meant. Um, and so you find a way to explain away the, 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 the new data that is challenging your judgment so you're, you keep your judgment. Right? And it looks like, we don't know for sure, right? But it, if you read the Financial Times No, it was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was extraordinary. It was on the, it's on the front page of the FT, that sort of the intelligence failure in, yeah. in, in Israel. And we were talking about it last night. Yeah, so it, it looks like the Israeli analysts believed that their judgment was that Hamas wanted to actually govern Gaza. Hamas actually wanted to make the lives of the Palestinians in Gaza better. And Hamas would never put that at risk. They would never put their economic relationship with Israel and the number of workers that go every day from Gaza into Israel and back at night, put that at risk. And evidently there was some indicators, maybe not strong indicators, but some indicators that should have raised questions, mm -hmm. right? And those indicators were explained away. So great example of confirmation bias. You know, what are the, what are the tools? There's a, whole, there's a whole set of them. I can actually send you. I can actually send you if you want. The, I would love that. The list of, of, of the different kinds of analytic pitfalls. And then, so the different kinds of analytic pitfalls and yep. then what are the tools right, to address them? You know, the, Hands up who'd want that. <laughs> so the, 
the, the, the most important thing is awareness yeah. of the pitfalls, right? Analysts get trained on them. Right. But, you know, just being aware, you know, you know another one is, um, another one that happens all the time is mirror imaging. So I have to, I have to, right, I have to think, what is Vladimir Putin thinking today about Ukraine? And maybe my sourcing on that isn't very good. And so what I do as an analyst is I, I say to myself, subconsciously, I say to myself, what would I think if I were Vladimir Putin? And that becomes your judgment. Right. That's mere imaging. Right? That's an analytic mistake, right? You're not Vladimir Putin. Um, and so that's another one that happens all the time. Um, so the first is awareness, right? And then the second are these tools, right? There's a whole set of tools um, to kind of test yourself. Mm -hmm. You made your judgment. Now I'm going to ask myself a bunch of questions um, about whether I've made any of these mistakes. And that's, that's, that's kind of the way we try to deal with it. And then we force, we force analysts, and this is really a result of our failure on Iraq, we force analysts not only to make a judgment, but we force them to have a certain level of confidence in that judgment, low, medium, high. And this is now, this is now so well accepted that it's, it's, it's common language in the intelligence community and a common language between the intelligence community and policymakers about, you know, I think, you know, I think bin Laden is at a bot about it, but I only have low confidence in that because it's a circumstantial case and we have very little data. Or we think he's at Abbottabad, um, and we have high confidence in that because we have three sources who have seen him go in and out, right? That kind of thing. Um, so that confidence level forces you, forces you to think about how strong your argument is. Amazing. Uh, please, yeah. I can't wait for that yeah. email. Um, FinTech is a national security yeah, issue. Yeah, yeah. So, you guys know it a lot better than I do. A lot better well, than I do. Well, you say that, Michael, but, yeah, no, you, you do. But, but in 2013, you were asked to delve into the world of Bitcoin. Um, Maybe start there. It wasn't 2013. Um, I was thinking about this last night. It was actually 2021, because it was, right oh, after, okay. it was right after the Biden administration came to power, and Janet Yellen, during her confirmation hearings, really went after Bitcoin. Um, you know, calling it the, the tool of, of, of criminals and, and terrorists, and. Um, and it was a bonanza for illicit finance. Um, so I'm on, I'm on the Fortress board, um, and, and, and you know, one of the seniors at Fortress is Pete Brigger, who you know, is, is really into Bitcoin. And so Pete said to me, he said, you know, when, when, when there's all this static about illicit finance and Bitcoin, he said, you know, could, you, could you look at the question of Bitcoin and illicit finance and tell me what you think? Because if it really is you know, as bad as the Treasury Secretary says it is, I'm going to sell all my Bitcoin. You know, I don't want to be helping terrorists. Um, but maybe it's not that bad. So he said, go, go take a look at it. Um, so I, 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 I learned about Bitcoin. I talked to Bitcoin experts. I talked to uh, current and former Treasury officials, current and former Fed officials. I mean, I really deep dive into Bitcoin. Um, and my conclusion was, you know, a lot less use of Bitcoin in illicit finance than certainly cash, and actually a lot less use of Bitcoin um, than the traditional banking system. And actually, if you, if you were gonna choose cash, traditional banking system, or crypto, 
um, for a, a criminal to use, you would choose crypto because it's traceable. How did we get the money back from Colonial Pipeline? We traced it to its... You wouldn't use crypto if you, you, were, if you were a criminal. I would want... No, no. As a, as a law enforcement guy, I as would a, want them you to. You would want them to use I it. I would want them to because yeah. it's easier to catch them. You can them. find them. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's what the paper said. Um, so look, I kind of put it into fintech into three categories. Um, you know, one is kind of a macroeconomic view, um, which is anything that squeezes the gap between what savers earn and what investors pay for capital is a healthy thing for the economy. Mm -hmm. And that's what you guys are doing at a very macro level. And boy, the, you gave the numbers. Um, Brooks gave the numbers, right, about how much more there is to squeeze, yep. right? How much more value there is in there. And that's what you guys are doing. It's a very healthy thing for the economy. And then I think from a, from a, a broad national security perspective, um, you know, it, it, as you all know, there's an intense competition between the United States and China that is largely based on technology. And finance is a critical piece of our infrastructure because it's obviously critical to the economy and there's a competition over fintech and you guys are helping in the battle, you know, for te technological supremacy in, in finance. And that's a healthy thing. There are some downsides about sanctions evasions and things like that, but I think in totality, it's a healthy thing from a national security perspective. And then the third bucket for me is, you know, coming from an organization where we have to pay our officers who are undercover, and it has to be clandestine, and we have to pay our sources, our spies, um, and it has to be clandestine and covert. The more tools that I have to do that, the better, and you guys are helping to create those tools. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, before we wrap up, um, it would be remiss to not pick your brains a little bit um, on what's in store for us or potentially in store for us in, in 2024. Um, I was, we were chatting last night, I listened to your podcast back in January, um, where you made some predictions that were eerily uh, prescient. Um, and so with, you know, a war in Europe, probably the largest war in Europe that we've had since World War II, with the US-China slash Taiwan tensions with what's going on in the Middle East right now. I'm sure there's some perspectives you can share on that and, and then also some stuff that we're perhaps not thinking about. Um, so on the Middle East, I think there's three possible outcomes. Um, the most likely outcome is Israel does what it needs to do in Gaza, which is significantly destroy, degrade Hamas. Um, the unfortunate part of that is a significant number of civilian casualties, which will turn Israel into a pariah state in the Middle East, um, and to some degree internationally uh, for some period of time. I think we'll eventually get back to where Israel is accepted not only in the world, but also in the Middle East. Um, but it's going to take a while. That's the most, that's the most likely outcome. Um, this kind of, maybe that's at 50%, 55% probability. You know, the second most likely outcome, which is the, the, the nightmare scenario, is a broadening of the war um, beyond Gaza. 
so a broadening of the war to, um, to Lebanon um, and a fight between Israel and Hezbollah, which is a uh, Iranian proxy force which controls Lebanon. Um, Hezbollah has, has, has capabilities that make Hamas look like a, 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 you know, a kid's gang. Um, 140,000 uh, rockets, missiles, drones, all pointed at Israel. Um, that would be a very difficult fight. Um, we would probably join that fight with Israel, um, would be my bet. And then, of course, there's the ultimate, um, the ultimate spreading of the fight to between Israel and Iran, which we would probably also get involved in. Um, you know, I'd probably put that at 25, 30%. And then there's a, there's, a, there's a positive outcome. There's a positive outcome that nobody's talking about. And the, actually the history of, of, of severe violence in the Middle East is that you end up, you end up in a better place. So the 1973 war, you know, which, which was the worst violence in the Middle East until October 6th of this year, um, resulted in normalization of relations between Jordan and Israel and between Egypt and Israel and resulted in the Oslo Peace Accords. Um, so there is a, there is a, a, a scenario where, where Israel does what it needs to do to Hamas, um, but somehow, some way, civilian casualties are kept below what all of us expect. And somehow, some way, the international community steps up to govern Gaza in the aftermath so Israel doesn't stay there. So that, that would be a bad thing. Um, and somehow, some way, a discussion about a two-state solution gets restarted mm -hmm. and actually makes some progress. Um, 20%. So that's the Middle East. Um, Russia-Ukraine is um, Russia -Ukraine's at a stalemate. Um, the Ukrainians have been at the counteroffensive now for five months, and they've gained 15 miles of territory along the front at a cost of about 80,000 dead soldiers. By the way, there's been 500,000, a half a million casualties in this war from the beginning on both sides total. Um, no side shows any signs of wanting to stop fighting. No side shows any signs of wanting a ceasefire. Um, Zelensky, you know, has the public support and has the has the mindset to keep fighting until he gets every piece of his territory back. And Putin um, is not gonna give up until at least he sees what happens in the 2024 election, because he is absolutely convinced that if Trump wins, um, Trump will withdraw our support from Ukraine, which of course would be an amazing gift to him. Um, so we're, we're stuck in a stalemate. There won't be much fighting you know, um, over the winter, but expect expect what happened last winter, which is significant Russian attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure to try to make people's homes cold and um, to turn off the lights. Um, and, I, and I think we won't get to a place where there may be an inflection point until the election, one way or the other, until so our the election. US, the yeah, US yeah, election. Yeah. So that's kind of stuck in the mud, literally. Um, right now, this time of year. Um, China, Taiwan, this is actually good news, right? Um, there is no risk, zero risk, that she will take advantage of the current situation to invade Taiwan. 
um, taking military action against Taiwan is the very last course of action on his list of how to get Taiwan back into the Chinese fold. You know, much prefer to entice it, that's probably not possible, or much more likely coerce it back into the fold. He doesn't want to fire a shot. He knows the, the economic consequences of that. Um, and most importantly, he's not ready. There's a number of things that he needs to do militarily to be ready to take Taiwan, and he hasn't done those things yet and, and won't be able to until later this decade. You know, when he told his army to be ready by 2027, he was admitting they're not ready now. Um, so that's good news. Yep. Um, so I think, you know, there, there's, there's been a bit of a thawing in the relationship between China and the United States in the last few months. Um, Biden and Xi are going to meet next week in San Francisco. Yep. Um, but then expect the relationship to get worse after that as we get into our presidential election campaign when everybody will agree that China is a bad, a bad thing. Right. That's one thing that people agree on in Washington, D.C., is that China is bad. Um, way overstated. Um, and the last thing I'll say is, is our election. Um, you know, our democracy, you know, we're, we're way off my expertise now, right? Um, but, but I've, in my 33 years at CIA, I watched democracies get destroyed and get replaced by authoritarianism. Russia is a great example. Venezuela is another example. Um, Zimbabwe is another example. Um, I'm afraid that our democracy is at risk. I don't, I, I don't know what your politics are, um, and you really don't know what mine are, um, but I'm actually afraid if Donald Trump wins, there will not be an election in 2028. We will lose our democracy for some period of time. Um, so that's kind of a quick set of, and I think it's, wow. I think it's 50, 50, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm, I think, I'm so glad FinTech is so I think, important. To I think it's 50, 50 as to whether he wins or not. Yeah. It's a coin flip and yeah. that's a scary place to be. Yes, it is. But it's a reminder that democracy is fragile. It's fragile, and you've got you to take care of it, right? I'll make sure my 17-year-old, who will be 18 in January, gets a voting slip. Amazing, Michael. Um, huge thank you for taking the time. I know you've got a jet back to DC to go and educate even more people on uh, the ways of the world. Um, so I think we're all hugely grateful that you've been able to Carve some time out for us today. At, at Thank you guys for, for being so attentive and for being what you do.